You are listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. The year is 1986. I'm standing in a little front yard of a duplex in Sacramento, California. In front of me is a large white aspen tree, its bark peeling back. In front of it, a little boy, just slightly younger than myself. His pouty lips are saying something. I don't recall exactly what he said, but the next thing I know, I'm punching Scotty straight in the mouth, blood spattering his head back against the tree. He runs home. I stand there, really sure that I did the right thing. I think we oftentimes forget that young people are young people. <laughs> They're in a developmental stage where they make a lot of mistakes. The year is 2018. It's been a good year so far. Better than last. It's finally spring in Chicago. The cacophony that has become the news is overwhelming. And somewhere in it all, I notice a story. A flashback to a time not too long ago. Only distant enough that the edges have begun to blur. I remember walking into the school building that spring day. There were police cars outside, definitely a point of concern, but not altogether unusual on the southwest side of Chicago. I remember thinking to myself that I'll have to ask someone what happened when I get inside. But what I notice when I do get inside is that the school is nearly empty. Students are slowly making their way through the metal detectors on the first floor. Something else not altogether uncommon in Chicago. Tilden High School has been trying to hang on, to stay open despite dwindling enrollment. The year is 2014, and I'm walking down Tilden's empty halls. I smile. I see balloons decorating a locker, the face of a student on a 4x6 photo. It must be her birthday, I thought. A little warm bubble erupts in my tummy at the gestures of youth. I make it to my office, sit down at my desk, and I'm surrounded by the unnerving silence of children that are no longer here. The school is starving, and every year there is less and less to sustain it. The school intercom crackles. I'm listening to the words before I can really understand what they're saying. My mind goes to the balloons, to the police officers outside, to the silence inside. It's not her birthday. India Martin is dead. Her life commemorated in the morning announcements. India Martin. India Martin. Martin. Fatally shot. Well, after a Facebook dispute. Interaction on social media. Through the years, I keep on tolling. Lord, I'm tolling through the storms and rain. Lord, I'm patient, patiently waiting and watching until the Savior comes again. The year is 2018, 
and I'm back at Tilden High School, this time as a visitor. I'm here to speak to Tilden's principal, Maurice Winnie, about how neighborhood violence has affected his students. I notice a monument in the front of the school I never noticed before. A simple white post standing about six feet above ground with crisp black letters. It reads, May peace prevail on earth. Like many schools in Chicago, security is tight at Tilden. Visitors need to be buzzed in the building, and there are metal detectors on the first floor. But their existence seems archaic, a throwback to a time long past. See, between the 1960s and the 1990s, Tilden High School was a very different school. A school that earned a reputation for gang violence. But you would never know that now. As I'm walking towards the main office on the second floor, I feel a warm quiet. Different than the silence that became so familiar to me four years before. No, silence isn't the right word. Calm. That's the word I'm looking for. I notice the bright face of a young lady sitting in the classroom as I pass by. She notices me. She seems excited to see a visitor stroll by, and waves with such sweetness it actually aches my heart. Walking down its halls, you can't help but take in the enormity of the building. Tilden's architecture speaks of a time when high schools were mammoth institutions of industrial labor. Tile mosaics and mahogany doors reflective of the importance and the expected permanence of public schools in the community. Just six years ago, Tilden High School was designated a turnaround school, and if ever there was a flagship for the potential good in a school turnaround, it's Tilden. But with all of the efforts and all of the beauty found within its walls, Tilden is still starving. Tilden has a building capacity to serve nearly 2,000 students. Today, its enrollment is less than 250. School closings are a serious concern for neighborhood schools in Chicago, especially under enrolled ones like Tilden. But Principal Swinney doesn't spend his time worrying about closings. He's too busy worrying about the students he sees in front of him every day. Other people have worried about closing. I never worry about stuff like that. I have done my best work. Don't misinterpret Principal Swinney's confidence for ease. Turning around Tilden has been anything but easy. You know, I remember some people thinking that I wouldn't last. <laughs> they were like, who's this short guy coming from Louisiana, uh, coming to the big city of Chicago? <laughs> I still laugh at it. When a school has been around as long as Tilden has, and has such an established reputation, breaking old habits, old conceptions, and building a new persona doesn't happen overnight. We had to move from, like, kids are bad to kids are experiencing developmental trauma. Uh, we had to also move from teachers are bad and recognizing that teachers are having this issue of secondary trauma and lack of self-care. So how exactly does a new principal from another city come into a school like Tilden and build the trust necessary for staff to buy into Swinney's new vision of discipline and school culture? I'll answer it this way. I think vulnerability first was the key for me to say, I know what it feels like. I've had these experiences. I had one yesterday with a kid and trying to make sense of um, at times when I felt I was being disrespected, even as a new principal and how to deal with that. 
And sometimes I, I would ask somebody to have a conversation with me and a child so that I don't use what I call my principal's card and say, screw you, suspended kid, bye. We also had to open up the conversation um, and wrestle with these ideas as a community. And conversations got very heated because I can have my staff reduce suspensions by saying these things are not suspendable offenses. But that doesn't make the connection between myself and what teachers are experiencing in classrooms, nor does it improve the performance of kids. Right. That's just a policy. But we have to really like we had to spend some time unpacking. There's a lot to unpack when you're a new principal. Deciding where you're going to focus your efforts isn't easy. Is it reducing dropouts, increasing graduation rates, reducing failures, improving GPAs, raising test scores, increasing attendance, or reducing suspensions? If an administrator doesn't have a clear understanding of how these outcomes are related, it's incredibly easy to spin your wheels and see no improvement at all. But research has shown that there's one key aspect of student behavior that's related to all of these outcomes, attendance. The average attendance rate for CPS high schools is 92%, meaning that students are missing less than one day of school every two weeks. Students with a greater number of absences tend to struggle in other ways in school. It seems fairly intuitive that attending class more would improve student grades for a multitude of reasons. You're there to do the work, You're receiving additional hours of instruction. You're potentially receiving academic and social supports that you would not be receiving if you were out of school, and many other reasons. But it's also important to note that there are a slew of potential factors outside of school that could be impacting students' academic performance, and attendance may simply be a symptom of these circumstances. So simply raising attendance rate may not be the answer we're looking for. We need to dig deeper and understand why students aren't coming to school. You know, it's interesting. I think the outside world comes in now. Uh, it doesn't always show up as like a frustration, but sometimes kids will just deselect themselves from coming to school. Um, and when you look at the history of attendance for Tilden, my freshman class come in at an 82% attendance rate. So they already have like this system or way of being where they don't attend school as much. And so when you look, when we start looking at it from that lens, instead of saying, you know, we, you need to be here a hundred percent of the time. It's like, tell me why you're not coming to school and why, what has been the struggle. And some of them have had academic experience that have sucked. Uh, they've had, um, people misunderstand them, misinterpret them, uh, some of them were brash in their own behavior. So, like, there was a mix of things. Um, and that that's how I think it shows up sometimes by not being here. And then, which adversely affects, like, a child being successful in school, making good grades to get scholarships to go to college and beyond, right? So, it's this rippling effect. And then I think sometimes it shows up as just what I will call seemingly random outburst. It's like, what I, what I just said to you could not have caused you to be that upset i just said where are you where's your uniform shirt and it just blows up uh that doesn't happen often but usually when i find that kids are having like explosive behaviors which are usually like more verbal than anything else it's there are layers to it and it's important to kind of unpack what those layers are 
The kind of outbursts Principal Swinney is describing are just one of the many ways trauma can impact young people's ability to navigate the world around them. When your cognitive and emotional processes are being fully spent trying to compartmentalize or rationalize a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events, there's nothing left to manage the normal stressors we all encounter on a day-to-day basis. Not knowing when and where these stressors might occur can leave students feeling like they're walking on pins and needles. As an educator, it's essential to remain grounded in the larger goals of the work and not internalize every heated interaction with a student. So how does an educator like Principal Swinney keep from losing sight of the big picture? And every once in a while, I drive down Halstead as a way to like re to keep me grounded in the work. When you go from uh, West Loop all the way down further south, I mean, you could see the change happening as you drive down Halstead. It is amazing to watch and you can see uh, I call it less money. Like there's a, a line that it just goes down. If, if 50 percent of your kids have experienced developmental trauma or the ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences. You're essentially running a trauma hospital. And so the way teachers understand children has evolved and has to continue to evolve. Um, it's different when you're working with high needs kids because you, we do realize like within them and we see it all the time are beautiful young people, beautiful spirits, beautiful souls, beautiful minds. Uh, whose brilliance has a blockage of some sort. Um, and then we have to begin to chisel some of that away so that we can get the essence of who the child really is. Uh, some of who we have here have been pushed out of other schools. You know, just being honest. Um, and they found their place here because we know all kids by name. We know their stories. And so if if... The question that I would ask for anyone, if you close my school, where do they go first? How do you ensure that they are landing properly? And who's going to continue to track and monitor them along the way? What the team at Tilden has done in the last six years might seem incredible or even miraculous to some. But there's no magic here. There's hard work, empathy, and lots of data. When Principal Swinney talks about tracking and monitoring students, he's not talking about some kind of mentorship from afar. He means data tracking, and lots of it. If you're the kind of person who cringes at the idea of data tracking, I'm going to ask you to hear me out on this one. Data are not inherently bad. Data are also not inherently good. However, how individuals or entities in power use or misuse data can have very real positive or negative effects for individuals. When I meet people who have a negative opinion of data tracking, I find it usually stems from an experience with someone who used data as a tool of punishment or embarrassment. But listening to Principal Swinney talk about data tracking at Tilden, I think would inspire even the most skeptical to rethink what data tracking in schools can and should be. We have um, what are called grade level teams. We call them pods. And like today, for example, we have pie meetings that start at 2 to 3.30, where we look at every kid's attendance, grades, 
mm-hmm. uh, behavior. And we do we we label by each name red, yellow, green. Green means they're fine, no need to worry. Yellow means that if how long was this child yellowed? Is there something we need to do? And then red says we need to focus. We need to look at uh, what is actually happening. How do we make sense of that? In those meetings, like we have discussions and, and each kid is attached to an adult. And so if uh, Maurice is not here, then whoever is Maurice's mentor should be able to speak to why he's not here or what's happening. Near the end of our interview, Principal Swinney makes an astute observation. One that I happen to agree with wholeheartedly. Not many principals could run this school or many neighborhood schools. Like what we think makes a good principal, I would dare to say if we did principal swaps, you know, we would see who would stand the test of time in any situation. Um, and the reason why I think the, those of us have remained at Tilden is because we we recognize that if we don't serve them well, what might become of them is the, one of the questions we have to ask. I think about Tilden and all of the support and all of the love that they pour into every student in this building. And I am struck with an immense sadness. India Martin would have graduated just a year ago. What would she be doing? What would her life be like right now? I don't know. But I am struck with an overwhelming sadness that she didn't get to find out. There's an important connection between empty schools and India Martin. It's no coincidence that India attended a nearly deserted school. It should not be lost on us that India is now a part of a much larger mass of children no longer walking the halls of Tilden High School or a multitude of other schools in Chicago or even across the United States. Navigating public space just to get to school can be beyond difficult in Chicago. Three quarters of Chicago public school students attend a high school other than their designated neighborhood high school. That means they're traveling, sometimes across the city, sometimes for hours, just to sit in a classroom. And as more and more families elect to send their students to selective enrollment and magnet and private and charter schools, neighborhood high school enrollment has continued to dwindle, leaving behind the students who are most vulnerable those without the financial means, the social supports, or the ability to attend a quote-unquote better school. Disproportionately, those vulnerable students are students of color, often from families of lower incomes. It's a vicious cycle, and at this point, it seems like making a choice, any choice, other than your designated neighborhood school, has become equated with giving your child a better education. And as enrollment numbers dwindle, schools are closed, leaving students to travel into unknown, or sometimes rival territory, just to get to class. In the great education shuffle that's high school enrollment in Chicago, children are quite literally getting caught in the crossfire. It's been four years since India Martin died. It's been four years since two teenagers argued and one went to jail and one went to a morgue. India Martin didn't die in a vacuum. India Martin died when a fight on Facebook became a death sentence. She died on a sidewalk as a repercussion of something that transpired in a virtual world. At least, that's how my 30-something-year-old brain understands it. But the way that my 30-something-year-old brain 
interprets the line between the real world and the digital world may not be the same way that a young person sees that line, or if they even see that line at all. And the way that I define the role that social media has in my life may not be the same as the way that a young person defines the role of social media in their life. Most researchers grew up in a vastly different digital world than the young people they're researching. And as we learned from Dr. Desmond Patton, that matters a lot in how we interpret the behaviors of young people, how we interpret their intentions, and how we understand ways that we can position ourselves to help young people who might need it. And so I think what's very clear, what was very clear to me is that these are young people who grew up with social media and who were 16, 17, 18 years old and social media had been a large part of their adolescence. And it being more than just a communication modality, but a function of life. I think that that's what's a key difference between young people who grow up with social media and folks older folks who use social media now i think we clearly see the distinctions between offline and virtual life and those distinctions are very much muddled for folks who grow up with social media when i was young i grew up with stories from my mother about what violence in the projects of sacramento california looked like my mother grew up in cb circle a place that had a particularly rough reputation fights were typical My mother was lucky to have had older brothers with enough reputation that she didn't have to find trouble very often. She, like me, also decked a boy hard enough early on that people pretty much steered clear of her. But context is everything. When my mother talks about gang fights of her youth, they play out in my head like West Side Story. Knives and chains were the norm, not guns. Did people still die? Sure. But not nearly as often. I didn't grow up in the projects, but I did grow up in parts of town where fighting was the expected method of problem-solving when someone crossed the line. But things were different in so many ways. My poor choices weren't documented and publicized in real time. If I said something about someone, it probably wasn't going to get back to them. And if it did, there was this beautiful thing called a pre-cell phone built-in time delay. You had to find someone before you could kick their ass. Finding someone could take hours or days. And by then you're tired. And you're like, let's just go to Tamara's house and play Mario Brothers. What's become really clear to me is that interactions between youth have changed. Not necessarily because children have changed, but because the context around them has changed. Sometimes you just have to change the administration and the teachers, right? Because you can't use A-track methods for an iTunes generation. (laughs) Let me introduce you to Andre Johnson, someone whose job it is to throw out all of those 8-tracks and find new ways to connect with young people in schools to address issues of community violence. I'm a child of Inglewood. I grew up in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago. I lived over there for at least 18 years of my life. Growing up in Inglewood, I saw a lot of violence on a daily basis. So some of my friends were shot. Oftentimes, when I, whenever I had stepped out of my um, apartment, I would have to look on both sides of the street because on one side of the street, um, there were the gangster disciples lived on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street were the Blackstones. So they would constantly be at war. I went to a school in Inglewood, and the school was about 
three blocks away from where we live. But my mother was so dangerous, she would walk us to school. Mm. She would walk myself and my brother to school, and then my granddad would come would come pick us up and bring us back home. My parents, although they had gone to professional schools, they really hadn't gone to college. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have that guidance. But when I started playing basketball at the YMCA, I had mentors there who told me, you should go to college. You need to go to college. Ended up going to junior college, left junior college and went to UIC and then ended up at the University of Chicago. Isn't that crazy? It how? Is crazy. When Andre entered graduate school to become a social worker, he had no intent in studying or working with community violence. But as is often in life, our trajectories are shaped by those unforeseen experiences that come our way. But in my second quarter of the last year, when I was supposed to graduate, I received a phone call that my cousin had been killed. My cousin was sitting in a car in Inglewood. He was actually waiting on one of his friends to come out of the apartment building. As he was sitting up, a car pulled alongside him and they shot him multiple times. They've never been able to find the killers. Actually, he was shot up so bad until he had to wear a hat on his head. It was just appalling what happened to him. And um, my, um, my cousin left behind kids. He left behind a wife. They're still grieving, you know, because you never move past it. It's a very emotional for me to talk about it, but at the same time, if I could just put a face to it, if people could hear it and understand, had those young men been reached when they were younger, they might not have killed my cousin. Some of my family members, they've chosen not to talk about it. We communicate a lot on social media, but as far as talking about it, grieving through it, they go throughout their daily lives not really thinking about it, but at the same time, it's impacted some of their behaviors. And that just, not only with my family, but families that have suffered loss. You're seeing high rates of drug abuse. You're seeing high rates of homicide within the community. Because think about it, there's a cycle that's playing out. So the person that's, that that has someone die in their family, they're, they're going to go out looking for revenge as well. So it's a cycle that continues to go around in circles until we get to the root cause of that trauma. Trauma is any life experience that happens that you're unable to make meaning out of. It impacts the frontal lobe of your brain that's responsible for the decisions that you make. Even when you think about youth in school, they're coming to school and we're asking them to do the work. We're asking them to perform well on standardized tests. But their meaning making has been altered. So it's difficult for them to actually achieve high academic performance if they haven't even made meaning out of the violence that they've seen in front of them. There are a lot of organizations tackling the issue of gun violence in Chicago, but Andre doesn't want to work for just anyone. Andre is at Bright Star, a community organization in Bronzeville that offers a variety of supports to families dealing with trauma. Gun violence is a common theme at Bright Star. So is an emphasis on empirically supported practices. As Andre explains, it's not enough to just want to do good work or believe you're doing good work. You need to be able to show you're doing good work. The program that I'm a part of is called the Truancy Education and Mentorship Program. It's called the Team Program. And 
the, the students who've been suspended, they actually come to us and we work with them throughout the course of the day. Properly identifying who needs the assistance that somebody like Andre provides or that an organization like Brightstar provides is essential. Andre can't be everywhere. And even a hundred Andres can't be everywhere. In a sea of young people in a city as large as Chicago, it's not always that easy to identify who to reach out to. How does an organization like Brightstar figure out who do we help? Well, I believe that data is very important because we could say that we're reaching this many students, but if we don't have the numbers to back it up, then it's just hot air. If we're thinking about on a policy level as well as on the local level, how are we measuring those outcomes so that the children and the youth, they can benefit? The world of data has changed a lot in the last decade. The type of information that's available to organizations like Brightstar has evolved. We're no longer talking about individual practitioners tracking individual cases. We can now zoom out, see what's happening at a city level, and really get an idea of what's going on, not just when people are in the building, but out of the building too. But accessing publicly available data about individuals who are not clients, or even more concerning, individuals who are clients who have not granted express permission to use their publicly available data, opens up an ethical can of worms. Dr. Patton and I talked about some of the ethical issues his team has faced, and a new set of ethical standards his team developed to guide their research. There are certainly guidelines on social media um, research. Uh, I haven't seen a guideline that fits my space. Telling me to get consent in this space is just not, you, you don't understand how challenging that is. And so that's why we have to push back and kind of create guidelines that honor the need to protect people's uh, social media footprint, but also honor that these are lives and something bad could really happen to them based on what they do and say online. My understanding of data collection in social media is limited to my handful of failed attempts to launch advertising campaigns on Facebook. In such cases, there's a menu of information available on social media users, and you simply click away to target a particular subgroup or a demographic. Simple keyword identification? This is not what Dr. Patton's team does. Desmond Patton is a qualitative social work researcher by training, and he brings both his qualitative training and his ethical standards to the world of social media research. And so we have this conundrum where, on one end, we want to make sure that we are not misrepresenting folks and that we're not calling things threats when they're not threats and that we're not further policing black and brown communities. And on the other end, we have mothers and sisters and cousins and dads telling us, if you could use our social media data to prevent our kid from being killed, please do. We've only looked at historical data, so it's important to know. Um, we start with a seed user. We then pull that person's top communicator, so the person, uh, the people for whom they mention and reply with the most, and then we pull their social network. All of the tweets that we've used are public, um, and anytime a person's account is closed, shut down, or anything like that, that person is pulled from the data set. Wait, wait, wait. Did you catch that? He's talking about removing individuals from the data set if they take any action to change the publicly available status of their past tweets, even though he already has the tweets. 
even though at some point in time the individual put this information into public space. The logistics of this hurts my brain and makes me want to cry just a little bit. But the philosophical nature of this decision is absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting because it's people redefining a space as private Mm -hmm. after, like, wow, I wish I could do that with so many times in my life. I know. I know. (laughs) But how does a qualitative researcher from a school of social work end up waiting in an Olympic-sized pool of social media data? And why? So I started the social media work really trying to understand how violence moves on social media and how it becomes and how it moves from general conversation to offline violence. And I now realize that that was the wrong starting place because what's been really clear to me is that young people generally do not use social media to be violent and that violence is not the initial conversation, that it's something that adapts and evolves over time. And so I think we've learned that young people are bringing a multiplicity of selves online that um, that is filled with intricacies and nuance and culture and hope and love and community. And if you start there and understand that this is a whole child with a whole set of values and ideas and family and life, um, it allows you to see them differently as opposed to biasing the way in which you view the social media data and saying, oh, well, these are black kids from Chicago, and therefore this means X, Y, and Z. And so we had, you know, it was very um, humbling as a black scholar to realize the bon- my own bias in the work and then to do an about face and redirect that work. And so I think we've learned that, you know, only a small percentage of the data that we do see is what we might deem aggressive or threatening. The challenge is context. So oftentimes I'm asked, well, you know, are these behaviors different for kids of color, kids who live in urban spaces? And I would say the behaviors are not different. You see young white kids in suburban and affluent and rural contexts using social media in very similar ways. The difference is context. And so if I make a joke that's misinterpreted, the context that I'm around dictates how I respond to that joke. And if you're in a context in the ecology of conflict and violence, then those sets of rules are about survival. And sometimes you may have to defend yourself in ways that you may not have to do if you're on if you're on the north side of Chicago, for example. I'll let you in on a little secret. I've been a fan of Dr. Patton's work for years now. See, Dr. Patton does something that I've never heard of when working with quote-unquote big data. His team employs individuals from the community to interpret the context and the meaning of the social media data they use. I have such respect for people who know how to check their assumptions about their work. I'll let him tell you about it himself. Every look at social media, we start with an annotation or an in-depth understanding of the language and context that's surrounding a post. To do that well, we hire young people from the communities in which the social media data comes from to translate and interpret the data. And so that means they are trying to help us understand punctuation, uh, capitalization of letters, 
emoji use, hashtags, things like that. And also the context. So if the image is by a particular house, what does that mean? If there's a certain way an individual is holding their hands, um, what does that mean? How do you make sense of guns? If someone has three, three guns in a picture, does that mean that this is an aggressive picture or does this mean this picture is about posturing? Our goal is to create tools for social workers and outreach organizations. So folks that are doing great and empirically validated violence outreach work um, in cities to have social media as an additional tool. And this is really based on what we've heard from outreach workers. So I did a study in Chicago with outreach workers and they kept saying, if we could just know what was happening in certain catchment areas, that could really help us to prevent violence. But by the time they get to an, um, an event or an issue, it's too late. The social media argument has already happened happen and when people see each other then they're ready to shoot what we have to think through is there are times when there's a a direct threat and so how do we handle that do you do we tell you that who the user is um and in some cases we may need to because if someone's like i'm going to go shoot john then someone should be told that that's going to happen um even if it's said in a joking way given the context it's important for at least people that work in that space, that are experts on preventing violence in that space, can make a decision on how to leverage that data. And so our goal is to really be kind of a data arm for um, these organizations at, you know, at a free cost, if you will, so that they can really have all technical tools at their uh, disposal to prevent violence. All of this keeps bringing me back to India Martin. Would any of what Dr. Patton's team has developed been able to change the outcome for India? A key element to the escalation that led to India Martin's death was a heated exchange online. But even if the young women involved were identified, what could be done? There's no guarantee that they would have been receptive to the help of a stranger. There is one locale, though, where nearly all youth in the city of Chicago, and across the nation for that matter, have in common that place where youth can receive supports from people they do know? Schools. But you might be wondering, isn't it outside the scope of schools to take on mediating issues that happen outside the building? Maybe. But if we genuinely care about the well-being of young people, we can find a way to fit it in the scope of schools. That's what Bright Start does. That's what Andre does. And it works. When I was at my field placement in my second year at SSA, I worked at a high school on the north side of Chicago. And this high school actually had two factions. You had one faction of girls who lived in public housing, and you had another faction of girls who lived in in the community. And these girls had been fighting ever since they were in fifth grade. And when they went to high school, they all found themselves at this high school. And when I started working with these girls, I started meeting with them individually. Then I started bringing them together as a group, as a cohesive unit. They had their differences because their families had been involved in conflict prior to them. So this was generational. 
the first peace circle I had with with these girls, they were about to fight. And and the dean had to come in the room and the principal had to come in the room. This was the first peace circle. But I knew that if I stuck with this, then we would start to see progress. It was very, very rough that year because this was not something that happened overnight. They got into multiple fights that year, but by the end of the year, they were starting to actually at least talk and not have to fight each other whenever they saw each other. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you're a teacher, a principal, a crossing guard, or a sports coach. It doesn't really matter if you planned on working in a school experiencing high volumes of trauma. It doesn't even matter if your time in that school is limited to a single day or an entire career. All adults, all adults in the building, need to be properly trained on identifying and interacting with students experiencing the effects of trauma. We've run out of excuses, and we've run out of time. I leave you with this brief but poignant statement from the principal of Tilden High School, Maury Swinney. What's happening with young people is not their fault. It's all adults. We, we let these things happen to children. And, it, and we have to have a collective responsibility uh, to ensure that the least of us get the most. I'm Callie Clark, and you've been listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. Like us on Facebook, Separate and Unequal, or follow us on Twitter at ChiTownEd. Yeah, I was a singer, so... Give us... Can you sing us a little song? <laughs> you know what? That part of my life... Andre. Yeah, that Andre. part of my... Andre! That part... Music's an important part of this podcast. Yeah. You don't even understand. <laughs>